All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We got a terrific Tuesday morning show for you today. It is election day in the United States. It's been a bruising battle for the White House. The pollsters think Democratic nominee Joe Biden will emerge the winner tonight, but the pollsters were wrong about Trump four years ago. Could they be wrong again? Could Trump win again tonight? We've got awesome U.S. election coverage for you on the show tonight. We're going to get you ready for an historic night in America. But all that, all that and lots more on the show today. But we start with here at home in B.C.'s soaring COVID case count. Yesterday, it was a record number of cases disclosed by Health Minister Adrian Dix. 1,120 confirmed new cases over the last three days. Adrian Dix joins me right now. Minister, thank you for coming on. Good morning, Mike. Okay, I appreciate it. When we see these numbers, over 300 new cases a day for three days in a row, over 1,000 new cases over a three-day period, I mean, these are scary numbers for a lot of people. What went through your mind when you were first told that this was the numbers we're on, this is the trajectory we're on right now? What went through your mind when you heard that? Well, we've been seeing, you know, similar numbers for the last uh, week or so. Uh, We have... um, we're clearly in, as Dr. Henry said some weeks ago, in our second wave. If you look around the world, our numbers are comparatively good. I don't think though people care that much what the numbers are in Paris or Dublin or Toronto or Winnipeg, right? We care about what they are here, and they're significant. Yeah. And that's why uh, steps were taken, a new public health order, which was uh, uh, far-reaching last week, saying that people uh, uh, in their residences are limited in uh, in the gatherings that they can host to, to a maximum of six people. We prefer even less of that, particularly in Metro Vancouver, because all of this is necessary. We look at each case. Every case is analyzed by by uh, infection control specialists in public health, and they, uh, they determine that that has been a major source of infection, private gatherings in private homes, and so we're taking action to deal with that part of it. In addition, uh, all of those contact tracers that we uh, announced that we were hiring in the summer when we probably it didn't look like we'd need them, well, it turned out that we did, and yeah. we are, and people are working. To say they're working at 100% would be to understate it. They're working hard. Okay, when I was on my, on my way into work, I stopped and picked up a coffee, and I had a quick chat with the, the person behind the, the counter, and she said to me, she knows, I, she, knows she listens to this show, and I mentioned to her that you were the, you were the first guest on the show today, and she asked me to ask you, will the government be bringing in more lockdowns or will Dr. Bonnie Henry be bringing in more restrictions? She said she was out of work for, for a couple of months during the initial lockdown when COVID first hit. She's worried about losing, being laid off again. What, what do you say to people who are worried about an, another lockdown? Well, um, I'm going to give a slightly longer answer. I know I do this all the time, Mike, and I appreciate, uh, appreciate people's patience. We did, obviously, there was a significant measures taken in March and April and May, and they had some positive effects, but they had some negative effects. When you, for example, don't have in-class schooling, that has a huge negative effect on children. Even though you try and mitigate that online, and I know parents and everyone did a great job, it has a huge effect. So it's important that schools are open. We saw an increase in the overdose, uh, number of overdose deaths, in part because people were more isolated. So there are consequences to actions. And so that's why the actions have to be measured. I don't rule out more measures. Of course not. If such measures are justified, if you see an area of activity, a particular business where you see just a ton of cases, like we saw uh, with respect to nightclubs in August, then action will be taken. But what we're trying to do 
is deal with this, but also have surgeries, also have schools, also have businesses open. And that's, uh, that's, uh, that's what we're trying to do now. And it's a challenge, but, um, but uh, what we need to focus on, what we are focusing on, is making sure that we can deal with uh, our acute care hospitals, that we continue to protect people in long-term care. And we're going to get a report today on that that's going to be right. talk about the impact of the lack of visits in long-term care. Yeah. And so all of these are real challenges. So um, none of these decisions get taken lightly. And we're very conscious of the possible negative consequences of other decisions. But you can't be afraid to take them. Let me ask you about the crowds that we saw on Halloween night on Granville Street in downtown Vancouver. And I know you've, you've said that you were unhappy to see that. Let me play this for you. This is Jeff Guinard. He was, he's the head of Able BC, which it's the organization that represents bars and pubs in British Columbia. He was on the show yesterday. We talked about the crowds on Granville Street on Saturday night. Uh, here's what he told me. We were allowed to operate until midnight instead of until 10 p.m. Uh, we could stagger the folks coming out of there, right? We would be there with door staff and able to work through programs like Bar Watch directly with law enforcement the way we have throughout the entire summer and prior to this. And I know that um, public health officials had, had rolled the, the hours back to 10 p.m. on the assumption that that would help spread the or stop the, the spread of COVID-19, but I have seen absolutely no evidence to suggest that that's happening. Okay. He's unhappy with the 10 o'clock serving cutoff. He said this is spilling people out onto the streets and spreading further risk of COVID. He says, he says you'd be safer to keep people in the bar until midnight. What do you say to him? I say that uh, the evidence um, contradicts that statement. I'm very respectful of everyone. I understand uh, the challenges facing the industry. But what we see and that was the reason the action was taken last week, was uh, the threat of infection and transmission is greatest in indoor spaces. So putting all those people together inside a bar for longer is not going to reduce infection. That's clear, right? And the reason we took the action we took last week was because such events uh, inside, indoor events, and we're in the in a season of indoor events, right, November and December, all the celebrations, religious and otherwise, take place in November and December. And that's why we've put uh, strict limits on gatherings in people's private homes, which is, a, right. is an extraordinary step. So uh, the reason that actions were taken with respect to nightclubs and, and so on was because of transmission and decisions by public health based on the evidence. And we have to continue to act based on the evidence. And I know it's frustrating, right? But, you know, as as angered as I am, because I think that display that we saw on the Granville Strip was um, insulting to the massive majority of people who are following the rules. They look at that and they say, I'm making these sacrifices and look at this, right? And I understand that. I feel the same way. But uh, the threat of transmission is greatest indoors in the small parties. You know, Dr. Henry, last Thursday in Surrey, told the story of someone who had passed away Right, and she uh, she talked about a small birthday gathering of a, not very many people, less than two handfuls of people. Right, and so we've got to be conscious of uh, the threat of transmission everywhere. Right. But the threat of transmission, we said this from the beginning, is greater indoors than outdoors, and uh, we have to keep our eyes on the prize. And uh, that's why we need people really to follow uh, uh, Dr. Henry's guidance and orders. Last question for you, Minister. You mentioned 
religious gatherings. We've heard Dr. Henry talk about weddings, funerals, celebrations of life. We see the COVID case count surging in the Fraser Health region. Are you working with faith leaders in these communities? I'm, I'm thinking about the large, the large denomina- uh, Christian denomination churches in the Fraser Valleys, for example, that have large congregations, or or, or some of the Sikh temples in Surrey that that are the centers of community life in, in so many communities in our province, and especially in the city of Surrey. Are you working with the faith leaders in these communities to get the word out? Absolutely, and we have from the beginning. You know, uh, in March, I think that was the first thing we did was uh, the premier, myself, Dr. Henry. Uh, met uh, virtually with faith leaders across BC, and we have to continue to do that. I think that in terms of weddings, one of the challenges with weddings is not so much the ceremonies, because I think that the churches and the gurdwaras and everyone else are doing a good job within their facilities of following public health orders. It's not the ceremonies, but it's the parties around them that have been uh, been a significant problem, uh, both before and after, and we've all attended weddings, so we know know those parties involve uh, music and sometimes shouting and dancing and uh, alcohol often. And, uh, and those have been a significant problem for us equally. Um, it's really hard in these times, you know, we're all apart. And, um, and people uh, are having to learn to grieve in new ways. And usually, as an MLA, Mike, uh, if someone I know in the community passed away, I, I visit them, right? And right now we can't do those sorts of things, and it makes it really hard for people. So... Uh, yes, we've been working with faith leaders, and uh, these are some of the hardest things because uh, weddings are great celebrations. Uh, of course, celebrations of life are very life are very sad events often, uh, uh, although they are celebrations. We've got to find new ways to do it right now. That's all. Thank you for coming on. Hey, take care anytime, Mike. Take care. All right, record case count of new COVID cases in BC over a three-day period, over a thousand new cases there. Big number. You just heard my interview there with the BC Health Minister Adrian Dick saying, "Well, he, he didn't sound totally surprised that we had been trending uh, toward these kind of numbers." Uh, for a while. One of the things that he did say that jumped out at me was he talked about private parties. We talked about the government reaching out to faith leaders in, especially in Surrey, about weddings, celebrations of life, funerals. He said that's really not the biggest problem. The problem is the private parties after the wedding or after the funeral with the potential spread for COVID-19. Let's keep talking about the second wave here with my guest, Dr. Brian Conway. He's the medical director at the Vancouver Infectious Disease Center. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Back to the show, Dr. Conway. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me back. How can we get the word out about these private parties? I just the minister just told me that this is a big concern. How do we do that? How can we get the word out to people that look, this is not a good idea right now? Well, we're in this for at least another year. So I think we need to teach each other what kinds of things we can do safely so that we enjoy the next year rather than fighting against each other in terms of being told repeatedly what we cannot do. So if you're going to be indoors, be with your bubble, add your safe six, people that you know you trust, and anything more than that is probably too soon for now. So think of creative ways of getting together in larger groups that do not involve being indoors together for an extended period of time. Is there, is there a danger in your mind of sort of going the other way, as you mentioned, sort of criticizing people for misbehavior rather than the focus being, let's figure out a way that we can continue to socialize safely? I really don't support criticizing people extensively for misbehavior. We're going to set up a cat and mouse game where people are going to be told they shouldn't do this and they're going to go deeper and deeper underground and do it anyway. I think we need to encourage positive behavior so that we can all live together with COVID-19 over the next year. 
It sounds to me like the government does not want to return to lockdown orders, that they don't want to shut down businesses, they don't want to shut down schools. Uh, the minister just told me it's important to keep the schools open. But if we continue to see community spread uh, at this rate and maybe a higher rate as we get deeper into the winter, what, in your mind, what could potentially trigger uh, these type of public health orders and lockdowns? There are two things that would uh, trigger a more extensive lockdown. First is uncontrolled community-based spread. That is to say, we cannot identify all cases, we cannot trace all contacts, and there is more transmission that we can keep up with. Second, if we run out of beds, especially ICU beds, then we will have no choice but to lock down. We are nowhere near that, and there's plenty of time for us to act together in a positive way to control the pandemic without further lockdowns. I get the feeling that people are weary of this. It's been going on for so months. We were warned months ago that the second wave would hit. Here we are in the second wave. It's it's demoralizing for people. I think it gets people down. Like, are you are you seeing a sort of a, a concurrent surge in problems around mental health as, as people deal with this? I'm seeing it very significantly. Yesterday, after the uh, Halloween uh, long weekend, our day in clinic was everyone being sad, everyone wondering when this is going to end. We need to admit to each other that this is a generational pandemic, and after so many months, it's beginning to affect our individual and collective mood. Let's just say that out loud, and that is also part of the better response. Let's deal with it, and I think that'll make us more inclined to make positive choices in our lives and it'll avoid high-risk behaviors for COVID transmission. Right. For people who are feeling feeling any kind of depression, anxiety around this, what would be your advice? First thing is to say so. You know, yeah. I am feeling sad and it's, so it's it just it is what it is. Then to seek professional help. There are so many good avenues for that, some very reputable websites, online counseling, speak to a healthcare provider, but I think it's high time for us to deal with this because this could be part of the of the pandemic. I don't want a mental health pandemic on top of the COVID pandemic. So we need to deal with it proactively. Yeah. Speaking to Dr. Brian Conway, Vancouver Infectious Disease Center, where do you stand on the mask debate? This is one that we continue to hear about. So far, Dr. Bonnie Henry has resisted that mask mandate, mandatory orders for face masks in indoor public places. Do you think that's the way to go, that we just continue to encourage people to voluntarily mask up? I think a lot of people are doing that, but we continue to see some people don't. Do you think we need a mandatory order for face masks? My sense is she's moving that way. She never spoke about masks until quite recently and then started talking about situations where people really really should use masks which for her is strong words i think we're moving towards at least telling everyone to have a mask on their person at all times to put it on if you're going to be within two meters of people you aren't terribly familiar with uh, for any length of time and the next step is indoors everyone kind of thinks about wearing a mask, except when you're with very familiar people. I think we're almost there, and I think that'll be part of the response and will allow us to do a few more things and probably be happier, happier with masks. Last question for you, Dr. Conway, with uh, just 30 seconds left. The masks work, right? Because we continue to get the pushback from a very small minority of people who say, oh, they, they don't work, it's, it's, it's a scam, you're still, going to catch the, you're still going to catch the virus even if you do mask up. What do you say to those people? No, masks absolutely work. They reduce viral transmission. All the models say so. And what I said before Halloween last week 
was the scariest Halloween costume is the one without a mask, so wear a mask. <laughs> Thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me. All right, welcome back to the show. Well, here we go with Election Day in America. Who will win the White House tonight? It has been a bruising battle on the campaign trail here between U.S. President Donald Trump, his Democratic rival, Joe Biden, and they're duking it out until the very final minutes. Trump this morning lashing out at the Democrats, predicting he will win even bigger tonight than he did Four years ago, he made a morning a news appearance this morning on Fox News. Democratic nominee Joe Biden uh, continuing to campaign. And then they will settle in tonight to watch the results. Trump and Vice President Mike Pence plan to watch the returns tonight at the White House. Biden heading to his home in Delaware. What is going to happen tonight? Let's check in with Reggie Cicchini now, a Washington producer and correspondent with Global National. Hi, Reggie. Good morning. Thanks a lot for doing this on a busy day for you. What are you looking for tonight? Well, I mean, we're looking to see what the early results are going to be from states that count their votes early. Uh, there are a whole bunch of them, so we could get some early numbers uh, starting at 7 o'clock, and then as the clock ticks down across the country, we'll get additional numbers in there. Uh, that's really all we're going to be able to base uh, anything on tonight, simply because there are so many mailed-in ballots that could take so long to count that there is yeah. still kind of a 50-50 chance that we don't have a winner by the time tonight wraps up. Yeah, the Americans have got that system where some states will count mail-in ballots early or on election day and then other other states will count later right so i'm looking at a, a state like pennsylvania for example which has gotten so much attention here in the last 48 hours is it possible that as these returns start coming in tonight maybe it looks like trump is maybe ahead in a state like pennsylvania because a lot of the polls show that republicans are tending to turn out in greater numbers on election day to vote in person on election day and maybe Biden catches up to him later when they count those mail-in ballots. Yeah, that is one possibility. It's being called a red mirage, where the early wow. turnout and the early results uh, are, are flipping towards Donald Trump. And then as a correction shows up over the next couple of days, as mail-in ballots are counted, which typically lean towards Democrats, uh, we could start to see the needle move backwards. And in a place like Pennsylvania, which is a must-win for President Trump if he wants to secure the, the presidency, uh, all eyes are going to be on that state if this comes down to a squeaker, if we don't have kind of a big blowout for one candidate or the other. Okay, let me play this for you, Reggie. This is Donald Trump talking about Pennsylvania, and here he is sort of keying in on those votes to be counted after Election Day. And listen carefully to what he says here is Trump. When the Supreme Court gave you an extension, they made a very dangerous situation, and I mean dangerous, physically dangerous, and they made it a very, very bad, they did a very bad thing for this state. They did a very bad thing for this nation. You have to have a date. You can't extend dates. The danger that could be caused by that extension, and especially when you know what goes on in Philadelphia, and it's been going on for years. So, Governor, open up your state, and please don't cheat, Governor. Please don't cheat. Okay, here I'm talking about this, like, is the election is, could be, there could be cheating going on as they count these ballots later. He, he talked about physical danger with counting these ballots after election day. What is he doing here? Is he, is he predicting or suggesting there could be, there could be violence on the streets of America here? 
Look, President Trump is simply making a baseless claim uh, with false allegations that there's some kind of cheating involved if states continue to count their uh, votes in the days after the election. Uh, It it shows that there is a clear misunderstanding from the president on the electoral process that put him into power in the first place. States make their own decisions on when they are going to count their ballots. There has been uh, a pandemic this year that has obviously put uh, enormous pressure on the United States Postal Service. And then there was internal issues inside the USPS uh, that led to significant delays in being able to uh, deliver ballots or even hearing as of right now uh, there are a number of battleground states where the on-time delivery from USPS has dropped in some cases below 70 percent which is putting millions of ballots potentially at risk it is not illegal for states to continue counting their ballots after November 3rd the president is potentially inciting violence on his own by saying that there's going to be some kind of uh, eruption in the streets of anger uh, and 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 that comment that he made in that tape you just played he put it on twitter last night and it was immediately flagged uh as misinformation uh and potentially harmful which 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 shows that the president is either worried here or is is gearing up for a fight yeah i think maybe both i think probably just judging by his body language and some of the things that he's been saying the last couple of days he's he's reading the polls like everyone else is and realizes that maybe he's in some trouble and clearly signaling that Maybe this ends up in some sort of legal fight over the over the, uh, the the results of this election. Let me play this for you, Reggie. Here, here's Trump just right up saying that he's getting his lawyers ready to go. Have a listen. And I think it's a very dangerous decision because you're going to have one or two or three states, depending on how it ends up, where they're tabulating ballots, and the rest of the world is waiting to find out. And I think there's great danger to it. And I think a lot of fraud and misuse can take place. I think it's a terrible decision by the Supreme Court. A terrible decision. Now, I don't know if that's going to be changed because we're going to go in the night of. As soon as that election's over, we're going in with our lawyers. Okay, there he is straight up. As soon as the election's over, he's unleashing his lawyers and repeating there again these allegations about fraud or cheating. And again, zeroing in on these states that will count ballots later. So, I mean, is this is this going to end up, Reggie, do you think, is some sort of big legal fight it ends up in court? Look, I mean, it's possible that the president uh, could could take whatever the results are and try to contest them uh, simply because he doesn't like what the outcome is. But, it, you know, we have to remember, number one, Republicans have been unsuccessful in most of their efforts across the country to try and limit expanded voting options for Americans. Uh, so it, it's unclear how this is going to work in the president's favor if he's hoping that a Supreme Court that has been tilted conservative because of his three nominees will potentially take up uh, any kind of matter that that would hand him uh, the the. the presidency. Number two, this is a president who is actively sowing doubt on results that are simply unknown right now. Uh, And in in the history of this country, Mitch McConnell has even said this, that there has always been a peaceful transfer of power. You know, you can contest a result if you think it's close. But if you if we end up with something where Joe Biden gets on the plus side of 300, where Donald Trump was in 2016, when he again was saying that election was rigged against him, uh, it makes it a difficult argument for the president here. Okay, Trump continuing to trail in the national polls. Most of the polls showing like almost like a double-digit lead, 10-point lead here for Biden nationally. But, of course, it all comes down to the Electoral College and individual races and individual states, and a lot of those states are a lot closer. Have a listen to this, Reggie. Here is Joe Biden on the campaign trail. Once again, in Pennsylvania, such a closely contested state. Here he is at a rally in Pittsburgh last night. I know as a Scranton boy and then raised on the border, 
of Southern Pennsylvania and Claymont, Delaware, I know it's not always easy to bring Western and Eastern Pennsylvania together. But you know what? The Steelers got a big win yesterday. Act to get COVID under control beginning on day one. I'll put in action a plan I like a surrender from Wall Street. That's all I can say. Well, I see it from Scranton, where I grew up. I see it from Pennsylvania and Delaware. Wall Street didn't build this country. Working people built the country. The middle class built the country. Okay, Biden, they're fighting hard in the campaign trail in those swing states. There, You heard him talking about Pennsylvania and also Ohio. And you heard him uh, zeroing in, Reggie, on the fight against the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. When you take a look at Trump's approval ratings, uh, how Americans perceive how Trump has managed this pandemic, is, is that his biggest, weakest, his weak is Achilles heel here in this election tonight? Yeah, it's, it's significantly uh, going to potentially impact the number of people that come out and vote for President Trump, especially in the states that have been hit hardest by this outbreak, uh, right now being Wisconsin. It's a state he needs to win. It's a state Joe Biden has somewhere between uh, an eight and a potentially 17 point lead over President Trump in one of those uh, key battleground states in one of their polls. Uh, this is problematic for the president. Michigan was hit hard by this virus. Minnesota yeah. was hit hard by this virus. Even Pennsylvania was hit hard by this virus, though the president pushed back uh, on the Democratic governors there saying it was their fault. This could be something that haunts President Trump uh, in the days and weeks to come as these votes are counted uh, solely because of the president's own words, his own actions about COVID-19. Uh, you know, Dr. Fauci has even come out to say, look, the president was far too focused on the economy, not too focused on the consequences of this pandemic. It's it's reflected in some polls. It's reflected in national polling. Uh, and, and we'll simply have to see how that plays out tonight. Okay, last question for you, Reggie. What about the turnout here tonight? Historically, election turnouts here for president have been a little over 50% in the United States. Are we looking at a big turnout here? This is such a weird election. So many people have voted already. But is it a big turnout? And does a large turnout favor Biden or Trump? Well, it's hard to see who the who the who the large turnout is going to be. Look, 101 million early ballots were cast in this election. That's historic, uh, and a significant portion of the early vote uh, was reported to go for Democrats. We'll have to see what Republicans are able to do to get the vote out to ensure that there is turn up at these states uh, by the end of the day. Uh, but at the end of the day, though, uh, you know, if you get something with 160 million plus votes in an election with a potential somewhere for 60 to 70 percent uh, turnout, that is going to be huge for the election. No matter no matter what, no matter who wins, no matter who loses, democracy is going to be the ultimate winner here if, you know, on the verge of three quarters of a country gets out and actually casts a ballot. Reggie, busy day for you. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you. All right. Welcome back to the show. If you think back now, 10 years to the 2010 Winter Olympics in Vancouver. Wasn't that a party? A lot of people had a good time. Should we do it again? Yes, that's right. There is a pitch to stage the Winter Olympics in Vancouver again in the year 2030. John Furlong, remember him, the guy who ran the, the Olympic Games back in 2010? He's keen on this. He's saying, hey, we've got the infrastructure in place. Let's do it again. We'd even be in better shape to do it this time because a lot of this stuff is already there. It's already built. Have a listen to this report here now on from uh, Global News reporter Paul Hasem. The avalanche of medals just kept happening, but almost more than that, the story became the people and the city and the atmosphere that started to happen around Vancouver. And yeah, we did get 26 medals, 14 gold. It was the best ever uh, by Canadians at any Olympics, and we did it on home soil. But more than that, it was a feeling of the games and people high-fiving each other and people just celebrating with each other in bars on the streets. 
all hours of the night, all hours of the day. And I think that was kind of the most memorable part of it for me. It's just, it's one of those things where uh, you, you didn't think about the flood of emotions or the flood of memories that would come, but it, it's something that Stephen Brunt, a journalist, who he said at the time, it really was a chance to be unapologetically Canadian and to celebrate being Canadian. And it was, I mean, we threw that no fun city, that Vancouver no fun city out the windows. Okay, it really was a good time. That's uh, Global News reporter Paul Hazen there reporting on the 10-year anniversary of Vancouver's 2010 Olympics, uh, back when they did a relight of the Olympic uh, the Olympic uh, cauldron for 2010. It really was a lot of fun. Uh, it was a big success in the minds of a lot of people as well. Should we do it again? Let's check in now with Vancouver City Councilor Melissa DiGenova. She thinks we should do this one more time. Hi, Melissa. Thanks for coming on. Good morning, Mike. Okay, this is in front of City Council this week. Uh, you're part, you're a, a backer of the motion. You think we should do this again? Bid for the 2030 Winter Olympics, right? Well, before you get too excited, I want to share that I'd put this forward in February. Yeah. Uh, that was <laughs> pre-pandemic for us. And staff had uh, cancelled our meeting. Uh, this was supposed to take place in March, where Council would debate and and decide on this motion. Uh, but but staff have put it back on the agenda uh, for this week at council. And uh, I, I still think that it's, it's a good idea to move forward with that uh, at some point. I mean, I wasn't planning on personally bringing this back until uh, early next year, but I think that it is important that we look at, uh, you know, especially after COVID-19 and right now, how can we uh, do the best? Uh, for the residents of Vancouver, for the public, uh, for our economy in looking at pandemic recovery and plans. And maybe the Olympics fits into this. I'm not asking council to approve uh, an Olympic Games or endorse them. I'm simply asking that, you know, we uh, we remain open-minded and that we maybe engage with uh, our stakeholders and most importantly, um, and first and foremost, uh, the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh uh, that are also included in that that group of four host nations from the 2010 games because I wouldn't want to move forward unless they wanted to and felt that this was a good opportunity for us. Okay, 2030 sounds like a long way out 10 years from now for the 2030 Winter Olympic Games, but of course, an undertaking of this size, you do have to plan many, many years in ahead. So you have to start thinking about it. I got, most people right now are just seized with the whole idea of the pandemic and trying to get through that. Hopefully, 10 years from now, that's it's just a distant memory for us as we get beyond this crisis. But in the interim, do you think, like you mentioned about the stimulative effect of an economic recovery as we come out of COVID, could a Vancouver Olympic bid, if we were successful, could that help our economy to recover from the pandemic? Well, that's ironically why I think we should still be looking forward to this motion. Uh, I'd put this forward sort of after the nostalgia of the 2010 anniversary, uh, yeah. 10 years later. But John Furlong's made a very convincing case as to the infrastructure we already have. 
So we, you know, are in a good position to bid and and host this. Uh, it's not just Vancouver's decision. It obviously would involve the province, the federal government. But, I mean, it's not lost on me that uh, with the, the 2010 Olympics came 2,500 full-time positions in the region, um, over 100 uh construction jobs which included training uh, and trades uh, trades courses that that were uh, given to people who we'd consider you know some of the most vulnerable and marginalized people in our city and also that uh, you know we were able to celebrate sort of um, our indigenous uh, people and our first nations and local groups including disadvantaged youth and uh, some of those other marginalized and vulnerable people through, uh, you know, social enterprise and having them involved in the fabrication and, and staging. And that's in addition to the $15 million that were spent at Vancouver businesses and all of that. So I think it's my job as a Vancouver City Councilor. I see it as my responsibility to do my best for Vancouver, for the public, to make sure that we're able to move forward in times of uncertainty. And I just think that we, we shouldn't leave any rock uh, unturned. Again, this yeah. isn't for an endorsement. It's to consider moving forward. Forward and John Furlong, you know, uh, I I trust his opinion. If we're in yeah. a good position to move forward, you know, as a former CEO of Vanlock, uh, and uh, he's been through this before. You know, I appreciate that he's been so engaging uh, with the community, and he's been out there saying that this is something that we shouldn't right. discount pandemic or not. Right. Yeah, he has said that he thinks there's even a stronger case now to go for the Olympics again compared to February when this idea was first launched. Uh, after now that we're in the midst of the pandemic, he says morale is low. This could help to boost morale and confidence and could give us an economic kickstart as well if we did go for it. Like you mentioned um, some of the infrastructure that is already in place because we already hosted an Olympic Games a decade ago. What are some of those major key sort of infrastructure pieces that are already in place that we would not need to, to do over? Well, when I look at the Canada line and uh, what was provided through that, when I look at Hillcrest Center, uh, other pieces of infrastructure throughout the province, uh, that that people enjoy, uh, Vancouver residents and others uh, who live across the region, but also uh, those who who come to uh, you know uh, play in our city. That being yeah. said, you know I'm cautious that we don't yet have a vaccine for COVID nineteen. We're trying to still encourage people uh, not to uh, you know be closer than six feet unless you're, you're within a bubble. And uh, we're not condoning, you know, large events or get-togethers. In fact, you know, that's been detrimental to flattening the curve. So, you know, I'm cautious about moving forward with this. But I think it would be a missed opportunity not to. And I agree with uh, Mr. Furlong. How much would it cost? Well, that's, that's that's a big question. And I, I know that having some of the infrastructure, we can't exactly compare uh, the numbers. It would be comparing apples to oranges. But also, uh, you know, I'd, I'd just like to say, I think that there's an opportunity here for some really big investment from the provincial and federal governments, as we saw before in, with the Canada line, maybe with our other transit projects and other infrastructure projects, uh, you know, 
tomorrow council is going to discuss kind of how we can recalibrate and take some of our capital funding uh, to offset taxes you know, for the public, that means, you know, that's money that we're taking from one place, putting into another. So if we're looking at the capital plan overall and providing sort of that infrastructure for people, like community centers, uh, recreation centers, you know, uh, I think that it's important that we're considering this. And, you know, it's very real to me that we'd have to start now. But with the jobs it could create, I'm excited about the prospects and hope to, you know, really start by engaging with our uh, First Nations with the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh. Okay, speaking to Vancouver City Councilor Melissa D. Genova about the idea of Vancouver going for the 2030 Olympic Games. If you think about some of the infrastructure that was built for the 2010 Games, a lot of that would still be kind of there and ready to go, sort of plug and play, don't have to build it over again. We've already got it. you got the Richmond Speed Skating Oval, uh, if you take a look at all the stuff that was built up in Whistler uh, with the sliding sports there for luge, bobsled, bobsled track run, you got the Whistler Olympic Park where they held a lot of the, the Nordic events. They would have to build a new Olympic village for athletes, though, right? Because that's all been turned into housing. So, I mean, it, it's not like it's everything is already built. There, there would be money involved, but... I mean, if you go back to the budget of the 2010 Olympic Games, they will say that they they broke even on it, right? I mean, we didn't lo- did we lose money on the 2010 Olympics? Well, I I think that you know there's different ways to look at investment, and and yeah. if we lost money, if there was money that was uh, invested in Vancouver, so it depends how we're calculating that. But what what yeah. I can say is I think with a new Olympic Village, uh, which we would need obviously yeah. to to host athletes, maybe there's an opportunity not to have those, uh, you know, homes afterwards be multi-million dollar condos. Maybe we could house some of our most vulnerable and marginalized people, yeah. you know, among others in, in sort of an integrated community. That's what I see moving okay. forward. It doesn't have to be a cookie cutter, Mike. What needs to happen for this to move forward now? This is on the agenda at City Council tomorrow, is that correct? It is. Our okay. staff have put it back on the agenda. So I, I, although it's a it's a political motion, it's a motion that I brought forward. They've rescheduled it. Uh, you know, for tomorrow. I'm I'm not quite sure as to the reasoning why it was put on this agenda. Uh, that being said, you know, I still think that you know, considering this and moving forward, the earlier we start, the better. And okay. I I don't personally think that it would take a lot of work to do that. I'm just asking your staff to, you know, uh, bring back sort of preliminary report to us after engaging first with, as I mentioned, you know, the First Nations uh, and also with, with stakeholders. Can we do this? Uh, you know, what will it take to do this? And, you know, what's the benefit to Vancouver? And that being said, I look to the public to tell, to tell me whether or not we right. should do this after, you know, we do that engagement. Councillor, thank you for coming on today. Thanks so much.